Thank you for joining us for this episode of the IPI Policy Basics Podcast. Today's topic is Social Media Regulation, Section 230, and the First Amendment. We're coming to you today from the studios of Salem Media Group in Dallas, Texas. I'm Tom Giovanetti, the president of the Institute for Policy Innovation. With our IPI Policy Basics podcast, we're building an audio reference library on basic policy concepts and topics for those who want to learn and understand how to think about policy or for those who need to get up to speed on a particular issue. So today we're going to talk about the highly controversial and misguided attempt to regulate the content moderation policies of social media platforms, especially in light of the First Amendment. And today I'm joined by our senior research fellow, Bartlett Clellan. And uh, Bartlett's senior research fellow is a reference to how long you've been associated with IPI, not to your age. Although it could be either at this point, right? <laughs> okay. I just, don't want, I just don't want you to be insulted <laughs> by the title senior research fellow. So uh, uh, Bartlett Clellan is IPI's uh, resident expert on all things related to technology, innovation, communications policy, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, IPI first got into technology policy when Bartlett came on board many years ago. That's again, that's a reference to the senior research fellow thing, right? I think that was 2000, the year 2000. Yeah. And so, you know, like most policy topics, it's helpful to understand if you want to understand the present moment, it's very helpful to understand what has come before, right? The, the history, the background for things. And so there's a lot of churn out there on social media and in policy discussion about Section 230, social media regulation, common carrier, all this kind of stuff. And I find that most of the people who are talking about it, frankly, don't have any clue about the historical background on any of this stuff. So I thought it would be really valuable if we would start off with you just sort of explaining the whole legislative and historical background to all of these issues. And frankly, it goes back to the days before social media platforms. It goes back to the to the days of early uh, discussion platforms like Prodigy and CompuServe and things like that, right? Yeah, exactly. In fact, I was going to say, I'm, I'm not sure it predates social media. It just predates what we call social media right, today. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, I don't think yeah. we had those. I don't ever remember hearing those words until, do, I don't know. Do, really you remember, like, do you remember when like Prodigy first came out and you would buy the Prodigy package, right? And there was this little modem that you would plug into the wall and it had a wire, you would plug it into your, to your computer, and it was like a 2400 baud modem yeah. or something. Yeah. And it plugged like directly into the electrical outlet. That's right. But it, as much as we sort of snark about that, it was revolutionary. It was pretty cool. Because it, yeah. it was, yeah. because all of a sudden you were, you were connected to people all around the country and all around the world. Yeah, I um, actually was just relating this story as a way, and, and this is a, the way of table setting. So for mm-hmm. people listening, uh, if, if you know this history, Great. If not, digest it a little bit. Yeah. Um, I got to college, and <clears throat> and I'm going to say this was 1988. I, uh, okay. In the middle of when I was there, and there was a um, network in the state of Illinois. I went to undergrad in the state of Illinois, and it was called, I believe, Illini Net. Okay. I thought it was the coolest thing that I could post a message to a bulletin board, and everybody. I've got big air quotes going on here. Yeah. Everybody. All across Illinois, who happened to be a college student, I don't know okay. how many uh, tens of thousands yeah. of people, right? But yeah. not millions, not billions, right? 
could actually avail themselves to my message. So at this and point, was this was cool essentially site. like a closed network, yeah, right? It, it's exactly only available right. to people. It was who, the early internet, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Yeah. What it, and it was all for research. It was all through the library system. So this was when you were a, an undergrad. <clears throat> an undergrad, yeah. So, um, so my memory is that I had written my first book, which had nothing to do with policy. It was about aquariums. Was like, and Tell fish. us what it's about. Yeah, that was, it was about <laughs> aquariums and fish. And I took the I took the money I got from the book, and I went out and bought the biggest, most powerful, most screamingly powerful computer that you could buy at that point. And it was a VIC twenty. It was like a it was like an eight oh eight eight. It was like an Intel eight oh eight eight chip, you know. Um, and it was like five thousand dollars or something, you know. Um, but this was just when Prodigy was starting off to be a thing, sure. and so I can remember plugging that computer into that little prodigy modem and logging on and creating a username. And all of a sudden I was able to like have comp, I was able to post things and yeah. respond to things with people all around the, you know, I was going to say all around the world, probably only just around the country, you know? Yeah. It, it wasn't, uh, the, the network, the, the web wasn't near, I mean, yeah. the web didn't exist, right. but the, the network hadn't even built out <clears throat> at that point to, uh, to have people and, and frankly, you, you had to be in a fairly developed country. You needed a really good telecommunications right, system. Right, yeah. Uh, and so if you didn't have that, you didn't really have access at all. And in fact, you'll remember, depending on where you were plugging in, if you weren't in a area that had a good telecommunications system, you would just endlessly you know, yeah. sit there and never get on. Right. It would take forever or you just right. wouldn't get on. So the handshake, the electronic handshake yeah. would never connect. And by the way, for our listeners, if if you are too young to have ever experienced 2400 baud, <laughs> you have no idea what slow is. <laughs> then turn off this podcast now and go to other policy no, I, I, In fact, I can remember when they first came out with like a 9600 baud modem. Yeah. Or a twelve something, twelve thousand eight hundred or something, whatever from U.S. Robotics, and it was just, that was revolutionary at the time. Yeah, that was about the time the OL just started coming in. Yes, the exactly, that exactly. And and what we're talking about here is like this was pre-graphic. This is like all text. That's right. Right. No no, no GUI interface right. whatsoever. I mean, your computer. You probably had a GUI interface on your computer. Maybe. Windows, maybe. The, the earliest version of Windows or whatever. Yeah. But when you went online, it was text-based only. Uh, that's absolutely true. Yeah. And, and I, my computer back then, which was um, an IBM clone, as we used to call them, mm-hmm. um, that you put together with parts from a computer shop or magazine. Right, right, right. Um, it had no, I had no graphic interface at all. Mm-hmm. Zero. Yep. So, yeah. That, and that, and that yep. was even in the nine, early 90s at that point. So we've talked about Prodigy here a couple times, and also CompuServe, but Prodigy actually became a big deal. They did in the policy history of this. Tell us about that. Yeah, it became an extra big deal in the yep. policy history. Yep. So uh, back to that bulletin board we were yep. just talking about the early. Let's call it early social media because I think that that's apropos. We then bring it forward. Okay. Uh, so you had a place where people could go post messages, and if people need an analog to this, um, imagine uh, I. I think Starbucks still does this, uh, but it used to be coffee houses and particularly Starbucks would have a literal bulletin board yeah. somewhere in the building. And it used to be at uh, Starbucks and, and maybe it still is that you could go in there. And if you were having a, a church group or a, um, um, a lost cat or um, right. uh, looking, looking for a friend uh, right. to meet to have coffee or whatever, you could post messages up on that bulletin yeah, so, board. I mean, pre-digital, pre-digital, right? Sometimes Absolutely. in your dorm, 
in your, certainly college campuses. In your dorm lobby or sometimes at your church or whatever, there would be a bulletin board, you know, job wanted, furniture for sale, whatever. And so in the digital world, these became BBSs, right? That's bulletin right. board services. Service. That's right. right. So just, just like you would think about online these days, uh, the bulletin boards would be full of stuff. Um, I assume that any proprietor worth their salt went by and took a look every now and then at what was on that bulletin board and certain things probably didn't make it. If you'd posted uh, pornographic pi- mm-hmm. images of some sort, yep. I assume they would have taken them down. I'm right. just assuming, but I'm I'm guessing that was... Probably different. depends on the bulletin board service, Correct. right? And I also assume that if there were uh, particular vulgarities and whatnot written, they would take those down. Okay, so now back to the electronic bulletin board. So electronic bulletin board, you could find all that same stuff. It was about, frankly, it was a bunch of kids like me in college and, and others. I don't mm-hmm. even know who all was on bulletin boards, uh, but they posted whatever. Um, and the, the conversations were often not surprisingly about things that people who were early adopters of technology might talk about, yeah. which might be, Hey, this happened on my computer. How do you fix it? Et cetera. But there was also plenty of just social commentary space that was going on as well. Yeah. One, um, an issue came along and I'm going to do a, a horrible job butchering a great story that Congressman Chris Cox tells all the time. But there was a trading service that came along uh, called Stratton Oakmon. And Stratton Oakmon, um, the, uh, people were frustrated and irritated uh, with the uh, company, said they were crooks, they were stealing from them, et cetera. And they started posting those kind of messages in these in certain areas of a bulletin board okay, now the, on Prodigy. This, the name Stratton Oakmont sounds familiar to me. It does. Well, Why is that? Uh, because you were a savvy Hollywood uh, observer. Um, and there was a movie made called The Wolf of Wall Street uh-huh. that uh, doesn't tell this particular part of the right, story, right, yeah. but does tell the part of the story uh, about them being crooks. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay, but, but, now you have to go back in time. This is before they didn't like people saying they were crooks because they had not yet gone to court. Yeah. So they observe that people are calling them crooks or other things. Uh, on Prodigy service, Stratton Oakmont not being, uh, or, or being, I guess, wise, uh, in given what the legal landscape was, say, hmm, we need to shut this down. Why waste our time going after all these individuals? We're going to go after the bulletin board service. Prodigy, they go after Prodigy. Prodigy says, we don't do anything. We don't Okay, so involved. when you say go after, you mean sue. Sue, that's yeah. right. And okay. I don't know, I don't know the case history here. I don't know what was served when. I don't know if they're seasoned. I don't know any of that stuff. Yeah. But ultimately, they were suing Prodigy, um, they, they and they end up in court, they end up in trial. Uh, turns out that Prodigy loses. Uh, Prodigy has said, well, we but we didn't do anything. Like, we right. just provided this service. People posted what they post. Uh, they lose the case. Uh, flying across the country, I believe the night the news broke, that might be a little more embellishment than he would ever take credit for, but uh, Congressman Cox is reading the outcome of this court case and says, oh, Oh heck no! This 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 can't be. Mm-hmm. Uh, why are we suing people who have nothing to do with the the, the supposed bad act, and then uh, and, and drawing them in? So intermediary okay, so, liability. So reading into this, he has a proper sense of who should be held liable and who should not. That's right. And and the idea that um, the court had gotten it wrong here that the court had actually found that the platform was liable as opposed to the people who were actually engaged in libel or slander. That's correct. Okay. And there is an atmospheric that's going on around that same time. 
uh, I believe it's in contract with America uh, in 1994, I believe is when the contract mm-hmm. came out. Yes. Uh, but if not actually in the, if not one of the actual tenants of the contract, it was certainly contract adjacent. And that was all about tort reform. Right. Uh, there were uh, books, there were actually best selling books that were out at the time about how all these crazy laws we had in the country on various things. Uh, one of them that got a lot of attention was about uh, properties having to change their door handles to the lever door handle for handicap access. Mm. And, and they were, th- that law had been changed in ADA. They were suing, they, uh, whoever, plaintiffs were suing historic property saying if you change your door handles, historic property say, well, what are you talking about? It destroys the history of this home, et cetera. Mm. So there was a, that was the environment. There was a lot of lawsuits going on about a lot of things in a lot of places. Be- because a lot of laws had been created that actually created new forms of legal liability. Correct. Okay. So uh, trial lawyers were gleeful because the way most of these type of lawsuits happen is you, you get a group of people or you at least certify a group of people and you bring this mass lawsuit with a bunch of people and the law firms, uh, frankly, walk away with a whole bunch of the money. The state walks away with a whole bunch of the money at the end of the day, if they win. So this is like a typical class action lawsuit where it turns out that, you know, 80% of the settlement goes to the law firms and like 20% of the settlement goes to the actually supposedly injured parties. The thing everyone should know when you hear class action is the class ain't getting no action. That's what happens (laughs) in the class action lawsuit. So, uh, so yeah, so trial lawyers are loving this stuff. Yeah. In that atmosphere, Representative Cox sees a story. Now trial lawyers can start going after in with with precedent. Yeah. Go after the internet or yeah. what was pre-internet uh, the computer services. Yeah. Is right. Interactive computer services, right. which is the word that gets used in the law. The the emerging internet. That's right. At that we point, we yeah. didn't have that. Well, did we have that word by the time we had that word by the time it it passed? But we, it was not. This is back when they were talking about the information superhighway. That, that, right? Absolutely. That's <laughs> absolutely right. Uh, so, so, the, uh, so Section 230 gets written. Now, it wasn't called Section 230, and, and I actually don't recall off the top of my head what the, the bill was called. Another thing was going on. Are you talking on. about the Communications Decency Act? Well, no, I wasn't. Okay. But now okay. we will. Okay. That's, right. a, that's, a great, that's a great segue. Okay. All right. Okay. Because also happening were people being concerned about pornography on the internet. Mm-hmm. Which is, as a side note, and put a pin in this, and we should come back to it, but if we don't, everyone should remember, when you don't allow anyone to watch what's going on in the internet, it becomes an open cesspool yes. of of hate and pornography. And, and there were certainly parts of Prodigy and CompuServe that became noteworthy that if you wanted to see pictures of girls in bikinis, if not more, it was available. So you saw them in more than just bikinis. Okay. That's- yes. In, in, uh, this is an adult pro. Or I, yeah. I'm sorry. This is a, a family program. <laughs> that's right. That's not right, an adult that's program. Right, okay. Uh, so, so yeah. So th- this is going on as well. This push to get rid of or be concerned about pornography on the internet. We hadn't mm. quite gotten to where we are today with child porn and child tra- sex trafficking. Right. It was that. That was that was what was going on. It was that, and it was um, mob related. Uh, yeah. stuff. That, that's really what people were concerned about. So uh, from the criminal justice side. So uh, law was going through or proposed and was somehow moving in Congress uh, called the Communications Decency Act. That was a, a move, a train moving out of the station as, uh, as is called on Capitol Hill. And so this notion that what becomes Section 230 gets inserted into the Communications Decency Act. Communications Decency Act, at least in the Senate, which is where 
I was working as a staff at the time. It passed out. I, I can't remember. It was some huge number, 96 to right. one I mean, or 98 because, to zero because or something. Because who's against decency? The, the, exactly yeah, right. right. So the law gets passed. Um, it immediately gets uh, the, a lawsuit filed against it immediately. I don't remember exactly how long, but it didn't take long. Ultimately, the court finds that it's unconstitutional uh, because you can't, for a lot of reasons, and I'm not an expert on these reasons, mm. but for a whole lot of reasons around pornography, you can't blanket cancel pornography. There are certain ways you go about doing that. There already have Supreme Court precedent, and they they that those precedents were held to be correct. The approach of Communications Decency Act was held to be incorrect. So Communications Decency Act falls, except every savvy writer of any yes, legislation I was, I was anywhere. Gonna, I was going to say, this brings us to severability. Yes, the severability clause. You always include a severability clause, and it is as simple as this. A severability clause says, if any part of this law gets struck down as being unconstitutional or for any other reason, it doesn't necessarily mean that all the rest of the law is also struck down. Yeah. Now, this is interesting and important in two different ways. Number one, maybe it takes out some particular piece of a law and so the law is narrowed at mm. the end of the day, but still goes forward in some form. Um, I guess number two, sometimes the uh, penalty gets stripped out because the penalty maybe is, is held to be illegal. Or in this case, maybe something was just slapped in the middle of this other law and it survives, yeah. but the rest doesn't. And Hence, let's, let's, let's do a little aside here because... You're talking about something that for a lot of our listeners is ancient history, but you know what's not ancient history is Obamacare, the ACA, sure. right? And a am I correct in my recollection that they neglected to put a severability clause in Obamacare? Do I remember that correctly? I have because this became an issue with the Supreme Court decision, right? Where I, they I said, handle technology policy, not health. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, the, the court did not say – this the penalty is a problem, right? But like the whole rest, so the whole rest of the law has to go out too, right? right? right it was kind of like right. the penalty is a problem, but yet the rest of the law can remain in effect. So it may be that I have it, I have that backward. It may be that that was because of severability. But severability goes to this question of can can the courts find a portion of a law to be unconstitutional? without finding that the entire law is unconstitutional. That's right. And yeah. there are a lot of good reasons for this, uh, mm -hmm. frankly. Um, and, and we probably don't want a world without severability clauses. Some people don't like this notion. But, but nevertheless, it, it, it doesn't matter because yeah. historically it was there. So section, this section, so if you think of a bill, yeah. bills are written in sections, right? Laws are passed in section when you go through it. There'll be titles and sections. Turns out... The thing that survives is what had been called Section 230. So that's so, why it's called Section 230. So the likelihood is that everything that was Section 100 through 220 was thrown out. Yeah, right, right. right. And everything there and everything <laughs> and everything thereafter. Section 240 thereafter was thrown that, out. That's right. But Section 230 remained. And Section 230 said, and I'm the, it, it's just a handful of words, but here's the effect that you can't bring a lawsuit against an uh, interactive computer service. So think internet, think computer company, mm -hmm. think ISP, whatever. Um, if they are allowing people to post messages and they are not involved in the, the messaging itself, uh, the situation, they, they have not contributed to the message. They are not posting it themselves, et cetera. So in other words, you act, you post a message that is not the responsibility or liability of the hosting service right. uh, in that situation. So is this the same thing as what we refer to as 
intermediary liability. It is. That's exactly what it's talking about. Okay. The other part of this is that if you gave a safe harbor, because Congress and Christopher Cox was wise, if you do decide to get involved in the messages being posted to say that kind of language we won't accept. Yeah. So if you use some kind of foul language, you have some kind of pornography on my site. I don't want pornography. I don't want girls in bikinis on my site dedicated to puppy dog pictures. Right. I am allowed to strike those pictures, even if it would otherwise be objectionable for me to limit the communication in that way. It says, if I've done it in good faith, then I'm not liable in that lawsuit, whatever lawsuit would then be filed, mm-hmm. go back to the Wolf of Wall Street. Right. That lawsuit, they would now have to go after the individual as opposed to go after me or Prodigy to go after deep pockets. So now the trial lawyers don't have a way to make money. So let me, let me ask you a question. Prior to Section 230, if I wanted to set up a bulletin board service to do nothing but talk about fly fishing, and some of my participants kept coming on wanting to have big political arguments or whatever, right? And I kept like deleting them and deleting their comments and deleting their comments and eventually, eventually I banned them as a user, right? Prior to Section 230, the prodigy decision suggested that I would have a legal problem there. Yeah, because you would be getting involved in, in right. the, the editing. Um, although I would, I would flip the fact just to be closer to the prodigy case mm-hmm. because we know what happened there. So we, yeah. I, we don't have to speculate. Right. We know. If someone came on your site and said, these fly fishing reels are the worst thing I've ever used. This company is garbage. They're stealing money. They're whatever. And you let that go because you're allowing the conversation to flow mm-hmm. and you don't feel like you should be altering that conversation. That's your decision. It says you cannot be held liable for what they said about that. If, they, if they're getting sued. So the, for, so the manufacturer who feels like they've been slandered on your bulletin board service. Not coming out. Can't you. sue me. That's right. Right. Okay. Right. Okay. Now, if you jumped in and said, absolutely, I agree with you, or you promoted that, um, you, you somehow made that your cause celeb and you start participating, you start giving it more um, I- intentional um, action. That's a different story. Now, yep. now we have to go through a different fact pattern analysis. And so this is where this law and other laws get a little murky to people. And that is, it's rarely a binary situation. This creates one, but then as soon as um, the moderator starts getting involved in any way, shape, or form, there are, th- this is why some of these shots are not so clean in today's social media. Yeah. They do get involved in some ways. They are not running afoul of Section 230. Uh, but they are involved. So you start yeah. having these conversations. People say, well, but that post got promoted to me. Like, okay, but the the point, they've not contributed to the post. They're not involved in the wrongdoing. Yeah. That what yeah. they're doing is totally legal. Yeah. But what the, it's the language, the slander that was wrong. So yeah. that's where some of this explanation okay. gets a little more. So I want to read the text of Section 230, but before I do that, let, let's just sort of recap. So the whole purpose of Section 230 was to give platforms – Yes. Right. Yes. Even though we didn't really, even though they weren't called social media at the time. I think it's better to use common language now yeah. Yeah, because yeah. those people don't know what you're talking right. about. Right. So it was to give platforms permission essentially to weed their garden. Yes. Right. To, or not weed their garden yes. as okay. they deemed appropriate. Okay. So here's, this is literally the text of section 230. No provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. Now, 
with all of the furor that we see right now in the public discussion and on social media about social about Section 230, they all act like Section 230 is this highly complex and controversial thing. And as I read Section 230, all it says is I'm not liable for the actions of another party. That's exactly correct. I mean, it's kind of a no-brainer, isn't it? I'm not liable for the actions of another party. Section 230 has become a... um What's the word I'm looking for here? It's not an icon. It's not an avatar. It's been it's been imbued mm. with a bunch of nonsense, and people then have repeated it, in, it including in the press, yeah, uh, on Capitol Hill, uh, state state houses, and they keep asserting that Section 230 is something when it is flat not. A very yeah. quick vignette. I had this discussion with a legislator. That legislator was insistent that I was incorrect. And I challenge that legislator to go take an hour or two and go research on their own yeah. and come back and correct me. Mm-hmm. Help me understand Section 230. Person goes back the next morning, grabs me first thing and says, you're right. There you go. That is not what Section 230 means. There you so, go. so my urge to everybody is don't trust me. Don't do it. Yeah. Just go. All this person did was Google it. Yeah. Go and Google it. D- d- find, find these argument points. Research it yourself. Don't, I mean, the, don't trust us. The, the, the huge, I mean, the huge problem today in these kinds of discussions is that people will believe what they read on social media, and the problem is there's plenty of people out there who either who either out of ignorance or malice will flat misrepresent something. Yes, and I think a lot of it's ignorance, to be honest with yeah, you. But uh, but they will flat <laughs> misrepresent Section Two Thirty. That's right. That's right. And they get all involved in this, you know, um. It's a it's a carve out for just certain industries and things like that. And the simplest reading of Section two thirty is literally you can't hold me liable for the actions of another party. Well, and I'll tell you what, um, I, I often just stipulate. Let's call it a carve out. I'm okay with that. Shouldn't this be the rule for everything? Mm. Shouldn't we have liability landing on those who are the bad actors? I mean, yeah. isn't isn't that part of what? the underlying frustration with our criminal justice or civil justice system is that we end up with people who uh, I am an innocent and and listen, I'm uh, well, you people can't see me. I am a white middle-aged guy, Mm. right? So I don't, that's why you're a senior research. Exactly. So I I don't really have this experience. So I'm a little bit parroting what I hear, Mm. but I'm an African American male who's walking down the street at night in town X and I get yanked aside by the police believing I've done something wrong. Isn't the underlying problem that we don't, that person didn't do anything right, wrong. Right. And yet we're imbuing that person yeah. with this notion that they must be doing something wrong because of the way it looks, the way they look, right. or the way it, the situation it feels, et yeah. cetera. It's totally wrong. And yet in this debate, that's exactly what people are trying to do. They're trying to imbue something where there is, there, it, there, there has either been no wrongdoing or the wrongdoing is clearly somebody else. Yeah. And we're going to ignore that because for money purposes, for the ease of a lawsuit, for the ease of a policing action, we're going to go after, frankly, an innocent party. One more note here. There is a long history of cases in this country that have gone to this issue, intermediary liability, mm. over and over and over again. And the ones that uh, we looked at on Capitol Hill in a variety of laws were all taken from uh, cases surrounding flea markets. Hmm. 
Think about it. Very similar to even today's social media. People show up to a designated place to put out their wares uh, uh, that are promoted and marketed their way. Engage in interactions with people unbeknownst to the flea market host. Yep. And so the question had always been, if and when a flea market host would be liable for, let's say, illicit content being sold at the flea market. Yeah. And we could probably all come up with some from some situations where, yeah, they probably should be held liable. Mm-hmm. They have absolute knowledge of what's going on, et cetera. But for the most part, wouldn't we all say we we don't want them to be held liable? We don't want UPS or FedEx yeah. to be held liable because A sends B illicit drugs and they had no idea they, they were in the back of their truck and dropped off at that house. I, I think this is an extremely important point, and I want to spend a few more minutes on it. Because you and I, in private conversation, you, you've made this point that this is essentially a form of tort reform, right? Yes, it is. So an awful lot of just plain old common sense people out there, you know, they, they go to Home Depot or Lowe's and they buy a ladder, and the ladder is covered in <laughs> stickers, right? Yes. Do not have sex on this ladder, right? Do not jump up and down on this ladder. Do not ta- stand on the top with a bucket. Do not try to stand on the top. <laughs> do not try to, you know, do not try to balance, you know, on one toe on the top. It's just covered in labels, right? And and just people with common sense that look at that and say, oh, this is so stupid. Well, the reason all those stickers are on there is because of out-of-control liability. That's right. Okay? And we run into this, you know, like everything in life is made more expensive because of just out of control liability. That's right. And so what I find interesting is that the same people and some of them some of them are our, on our team, right? Some of them are conservatives and republicans, right? They decry this expansion of liability. They they insist on the need for tort reform. But then they look at something like section 230 and they're outraged at it. And it's totally inconsistent with their principles. That's right. Because all Section 230, again, is saying is you're not liable for the actions of somebody else. That's right. So why would you in every other area of policy think that liability is out of control and we need to return to the principle of individual responsibility? But then you look at social media platforms and say that Twitter and Facebook and Pinterest and eBay and Amazon should be held responsible for the actions of other people. It's completely inconsistent with their with the nor- their normal worldview, and it's completely inconsistent with this idea of individual responsibility. Why? Sh- I mean, whatever your favorite website is, maybe it's a horse website, maybe it's a quilting website, maybe it's a again fly fishing website. Whatever your favorite website is. If somebody comes onto that website in the comment section and starts just behaving completely obnoxiously, you think your favorite website should be held liable for that? It makes no sense, and it's a violation of individual responsibility. I wonder how many small business owners, um, and and I I have absolutely no example here of anyone who I know that says this, Mm -hmm. but it'd be interesting to hear from small business owners who believe they should be responsible for the bad acts of a customer on their premises. Yeah. In fact, they are empowered to eject that person right. without any, they can even set all kinds of rules, right? So no shoes, no shirt, no service. I was just going to bring that up. So section 230 is essentially the equivalent of no shirt, no shoes, no service. Yeah. In, you know? in, in, a, in a way, right? It, it, give, it, it gives a business owner the right to sort of set the terms of participation. The, uh, that That is correct. That is yeah. correct. Yeah. So 
sort of wrapping up the section 230 part of our podcast, sec- the whole, all of the sort of um, debate and screaming and yelling and consternation over section 230 is kind of just a canard. You know, yes, it is because all all <laughs> Section two thirty does is give social media platforms something approaching the same rights that every other business has, right? Well, it's it's at the very it's at its most benign. It's a horrible distraction. Yeah, I think it's worse than I think it's malignant mm. because I think that it can it makes the argument and those who who push this idea that Section two thirty is uh, needs to somehow be uh, gotten rid of, let's mm. say, and it's yep. in the most extreme that that somehow it is okay to blame others for the bad actions of, or to blame a third party for the bad actions of others. Yeah. And I, I find that to be horribly corrosive. Um, it, I mean, listen, you can be cynical and in some ways I really am and say, this is all about trial lawyers wanting more money. That would be bad enough on its face. Yeah. This is even worse than that. It's that corrosive effect and idea notion that individuals aren't responsible for their actions. Right. Those people walk away because they're quote, not quote, because they're too small. They don't have enough money in their pockets. Yeah. So I'll go after the the rich folks over here. And I know you're looking for the transition, so I'm going to tee this one up okay. for you. All right, okay. So so okay. So we've just talked about everything. The section two thirty is not. So what is the big deal about yeah. social media? How does this debate even exist? Yeah. It, it's a much older document that is a section of another uh, historic document <laughs> in the United States. And now I'll turn it back That's, over to that you. That is spectacular <laughs> because that really is the point that that Section 230 is actually a footnote compared to the significance and importance of the First Amendment. That's right. Right? And, you know, for all of the consternation about Section 230, I mean, whatever you have, whatever you I mean, okay, fine. If you want to change Section 230, change Section 230, right? But it doesn't limit the First Amendment. Yeah, it's it's not going to get you where you want to go right. in this policy you, debate. You can't undermine the First Amendment by tweaking and twisting Section 230 around. And while the most popular understanding of the First Amendment is the government can't stop you from speaking under most circumstances— Underappreciated is this idea that the government can't compel you to speak. That's right. Right? The government can't force you to speak. And for a lot of our listeners, this is a this ought to be an extremely important principle because you've got this Christian baker in Colorado named Jack Phillips who is being persecuted by people because he won't host speech on his platform that he doesn't agree with. Exactly. And his platform is his cake. If you want to stroll into Jack Phillips's bakery and buy a cake, you can buy a cake. He doesn't discriminate against you. Correct. You can walk in there, uh, the most flaming <laughs> transgender, transvestite kind of person, and Jack Phillips will sell you cookies. He'll sell you bread. He'll sell you a cake. But if you want him to put a message on his cake that he doesn't agree with, he won't do it. Because the First Amendment protects him against compelled speech. That's right. And this is a this ought to be a sacred principle for people, for Americans, that that, that you cannot be compelled to speak or to host speech that is a violation of your conscience or that you simply don't want to host and don't want to facilitate. And just like Jack Phillips's platform is his cake. 
Facebook's platform and Twitter's platform is their website. That's right. And if you want to give the government permission to tell social media platforms what they can and cannot host, and if you want to put obligations on them that they have to host content that they don't want to host, that is going to directly affect folks like Jack Phillips. And if the government can force Facebook to host content that it doesn't want to host, it can force Jack Phillips to host content that he doesn't want to host. Am I right or am I wrong? No, you're right. Um, although I'd make it more personal. Uh, it, it, if you don't, supporting Section 230, you might as well, or changes, mm -hmm. um, or supporting limiting the speech on platforms, mm -hmm. is another way of saying, or requiring certain speech on platforms. Imagine it's you, dear listener, who is now required to wear a T-shirt bearing um, the campaign slogan of of the other side, whoever mm -hmm. that is, right. and you are required to wear it. Now, that I, I will say because I, I think this is important to note because um, some of these issues or some of these topics get a little bit difficult and challenging. We're talking about government compelled speech, right? It doesn't mean that there aren't re repercussions in the marketplace for your choice, whether, and I forgot the baker's name already. You said it five minutes ago, but, um, he, he may or may not have a bakery tomorrow. Yeah. If he goes down this road, if, if his policies alienate most of his customers, then the market will put him out of business. Correct. And I think, and I know, I don't have to think, mm -hmm. I know you and I and IPI would all say, and thus shall it be. Yes. That's the way absolutely. it goes. Um, on the other hand, if he, uh, yeah, he, he, he does not have an entitlement to your commerce. That's right. As a consumer. That's right. Right. Yeah. So I would urge, I always urge people, like, if that really burns you up, don't go to his bakery. Right. Don't, don't go to Facebook. Don't use these things. Yeah. I urge you not to, because that's it's kind of the, the beauty of be. Liberty, right? That's, uh, that's he, what I love. He, about. he can do what he chooses to do, but you can do what you choose to do. That's right. And yeah. I do think it's important to bring up because people love then to say, but well, then what's the option? Like, well, the option is, uh, is plain as you, the nose on your face. Yeah. It really is yeah. that easy. So we've seen several red states enact legislation in the last couple of legislative sessions where at the state level, they're trying to compel speech, yes. right? They're, 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 they're telling social media platforms, here's what you have to do. And here's what you can't do. Most notably both Florida and Texas, correct. Uh, Texas being the state of our domicile, um, have passed laws along these lines. And in both cases, the first judge that had a look at it tossed it out and saw it as an obvious violation of the First Amendment protections against compelled speech. And uh, I testified in Texas several times on the Texas legislation. Legislators that we otherwise highly admire were pushing this legislation. A governor, Greg Abbott, who I otherwise highly admire, was pushing the legislation and signed the legislation. But as I testified in Texas more than once, uh, despite your intentions, despite the nobility or sincerity of your intentions, this is not going to pass First Amendment scrutiny. Because the whole purpose of the First Amendment is to protect private speakers against government regulation of their speech. And that's literally what you're doing here. You are a government, you're a legislature, and you're telling private actors what speech they must host and what speech they must not host. And, you know, I hate to say I told you so, but I told you so, right? And in, in both cases, the legislation has been thrown out. It was To anyone who understands the First Amendment, it's as obvious as day. 
I don't know if the sponsors of the legislation suspected it would be thrown out, but just did it anyway, just for political purposes. I mean, I just honestly don't know. I don't like to talk about people's motives. Uh, but our listeners should understand that it is not a victory for the dark side when a judge throws out that kind of legislation. It is a victory for the First Amendment. And the First Amendment exists to protect people's speech who you disagree with. That's right. In fact, it's a victory for the people. It's not a victory yes. for the dark side at all. It's right. a victory for the light. And, and, and I will, I'll come right out and say that I have more often than not disagreed with the content moderation decision that Twitter makes. And I have often disagreed with the content moderation decisions that Facebook has made. They were far too quick, for instance, to censor a discussion that, that the COVID-19 virus might have been a lab leak. And here we are 22 months later, that is now the consensus view. But if you said that a year ago on social media, you would get blocked. So they were wrong to do that. But should they be held legally liable for doing it? No, they have a First Amendment right to do that. They have a First Amendment right to be wrong, which sort of reminds me of back in the good old days when the ACLU would defend the right of Nazis to parade downtown. Right. Now, Nazis, let me make the least controversial statement I'll ever make. <laughs> Nazis are wrong, okay? But they still had a right to political speech, and the ACLU defended them, okay? And so Twitter and Facebook can be, I don't mean to compare them to Nazis, but they can be wrong in their content moderation decisions, but they still have a right to do it under the First Amendment. That, that's correct. And you do not get around the First Amendment protect. Thank God you do not get around the First Amendment protections by tweaking and twisting Section 230. And you do not get around First Amendment protections by declaring that social media platforms are common carriers, right? Because as it turns out, our constitutional protections in the Bill of Rights are pretty darned robust. And thank God for that. So you mentioned common carrier a couple of times. Do you want to, not assuming that people yeah. know what common carrier is, do yeah. you want to talk about that for one second? So, so, so the Texas legislation, frankly, I don't remember if the Florida legislation did this or not, but the Texas legislation, just literally the first paragraph says, we find that social media platforms are common carriers. Now, first of all, that's not how you decide what a common carrier is, right? right. But historically, common carriers are those, they tend to be infrastructure plays, Right like trains and planes and phone services and water pipelines and gas pipelines and sewage system, things like that, that are commonly available to everyone. And anyone who's willing to pay the price of admission basically has access, right? Um, but even common carriers, they don't lose all their rights. You can be thrown off a plane. You can be disconnected from your local electric utility if you don't pay your bill. So even, even the ideas behind common carriers are not absolute. The U.S. Postal Service does not take every package. Right. If it's not packaged correctly. Exactly. If it's not marked with the correct postage. That, that's exactly any, right. Any number of rules that's that exactly gets right. you kicked out of the system. Right. But historically, you know, his, there is historical precedent for determining what is and what is not a common carrier. That's right. There's a whole set of legal Yes, uh, exactly. Arguments. And it is a purely, it's not a constitutional regime. It's a purely common law legal regime, right? And it evolves and changes over time. 
So, you know, you can project out and say, okay, so 10 years from now, we will actually consider social media platforms to be common carriers. Now, I hope not. We would oppose that, but it might happen. But even if it does happen, they still have First Amendment protections. That's right. I mean, if just classifying someone as a common carrier does not eliminate their protection, First Amendment protection against compelled speech. And, and let's be clear, back to you, you said it, but I want to underscore, classifying them, quote unquote, mm-hmm. classifying, is not just asserting in a piece of state legislation right. that we have found that they are. Right. When in fact, there hasn't been any study, understanding, or finding yeah. of anybody other than political. Exactly. Now, we should make a point. You know, I have stated a couple times that like judges have thrown this legislation out, the Florida and Texas legislation. But of course, that's only the first round. Right. 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 I mean, they will appeal. It will go. They to, are appealing. Yeah, the appeal, exactly. They've already appealed. Filed, right. Yeah. So it will go to appellate court. And there's, an, there's a strong likelihood that these cases will go all the way to the Supreme Court. If for no other reason than that AGs have an unlimited taxpayer supported budget. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> to, to drive these things all the way to the Supreme Court. Right. And uh, people who are fond of this kind of legislation uh, are very fond of talking about some comments Justice Thomas made last year correct? about the fact that um, we ought to take another look at this, essentially, for the Supreme Court. Well, um, fine. I mean, nobody's perfect. I'm a big fan of Clarence Thomas. I think he's wrong on this. He's been wrong on things before. But there's there's a likelihood that this will probably make its way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court will settle a lot of these things. Uh, But I think that you would probably agree with me that changes to Section 230 are not a declaration of common carrier status or not, that the Supreme Court has historically always broadened rather than narrowed free speech protections and that there is little to no chance that the Supreme Court would take this as an opportunity to actually start to narrow or restrict First Amendment protections. Agreed, and certainly not, I can't even begin to imagine, as dramatic as Mm -hmm. what the proponents of restriction um, or other government control, for example, like the Texas bill, like the Florida bill. Uh, I can't imagine they would take that dramatic of an action to go that way. That would be a huge change in the direction of how we view the First Amendment. It would be be like a historic change of direction for the Supreme Court. And, you know, sort of my final thought on this is that for, for our listeners out there who are conservatives and who are skeptics of big government, uh, why would you want to put government in charge of this? Because you know what? More often than not, it ain't people like us who are running the government. More often than not, it ain't people like us who are writing the regulation. So why on earth would you want to give the, the government this kind of power? It will almost certainly redound to the harm of conservatives and people who believe in free speech and limited government. So a lot of our friends and a lot of people we admire are on the other side of this issue than we are. Uh, But they better hope that we prevail rather than they. I would urge people to read into the history of uh, before there was a First Amendment why we why we have such protections. Mm-hmm. It was never to protect the majority. Right. It's always to protect it's always the, minority. the minority. And if you're a conservative and if you're a free market person, you're likely usually going to be in the minority. Well, thank you for joining us so much for this episode of the IPI Policy Basics podcast. You can find more about free speech, the Constitution, communications, 
technology policy, and all of the topics that we hit on at our website at IPI.org. If you've enjoyed this podcast, how about giving us a favorable review on iTunes or on your favorite podcast platform? And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider helping to sponsor these podcasts by becoming a member of IPI's Giving Society. I want to have a special thanks for Bartlett Clellan for joining us today in studio. I want to thank all of you who listened. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time.